Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, I'm Matt Kelly, founder of The New European. If you like The New European podcast, you're going to love The New European newspaper. Unique content from people who love being European as much as you do, a different take on current affairs, bringing insight to untold stories from within our continent and explaining how they shape our lives. And page after page of fabulous arts and culture coverage from across Europe. It's witty, entertaining, and when it drops through your letterbox each week, it's going to remind you that a strong pro-European community is alive and well in this country we love. It's on sale at newsagents every Thursday, But make sure you don't miss a copy by subscribing. We've got a special time-limited offer just now. Go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe and you get the newspaper delivered every week anywhere in the UK for just £10 a month. And you also get full access to our e-edition. You're going to love it and you'll be supporting great journalism. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Hello Snowflakes and welcome to the New European Podcast. We are bringing you a British eye on European politics and culture. It's from the people who bring you the New European newspaper. You can subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk. My name is Steve Anglesey. I'm joined by Matt Kelly, CEO, publisher, editor-in-chief of the New European. Hello Matt. Hello mate, you okay? I think I've got all of your titles there. No, I've got some. I'm like, uh, who was it? It was the King of um, last King, King of Scotland. Scotland. King of Scotland. I'll sit there. I'll be listing them on and on. Don't worry. Mar- marvelous. We'll pick that up later on. <laughs> Guest this week is uh, well. I think she's now Britain's leading media co- commentator, um, Liz Gerrard. Uh, she is going to be answering the question: Why does the the British press hate Meghan Markle so much? Is it racism is it sexism is it just because Meghan Markle's particularly awful person uh we'll be finding out um first though Matt um I think we should just touch on the the, before we talk about the budget and and we we talked to Liz I think we should touch on the news from from Europe which is I don't know about you have you ever had a a memorable sort of first day in a job I, I, you're alluding to Frosty the Nomad, aren't you? But yes, yes I, I have actually. Um, when I joined the Mirror, uh, I got so drunk the night before that I couldn't focus on the on the computer screen. I thought the building, we were in Canary Wharf at the time, I thought the building was moving. And asked the guy, Nigel Thompson, who was sat opposite me, I said, does this building move? And Nigel was a very precise guy. and said, oh, yes, he, 
in high winds, this building will move eight centimetres at the top, you know, and all this. And I said, no, it's bloody swaying, mate. Is it rocking? <laughs> I had to feign illness and uh, and go and sleep it off and then turn up the next day shamefaced. But I don't think I fooled anybody. It was first day hangover hell. Well, David Frost, I mean, it's not exactly his first day, but it's certainly his first week in charge of leading... Uh, forging a new relationship with the EU, which he appears to have done by sort of, I don't know, he's, he's sort of moved in and then he's he's kind of pulled the petrol on and, and uh, lit the blue touch paper and retired. He's, the, the, the UK has unilaterally declared that some of the checks that were coming into force um, on goods flowing into and out of Northern Ireland um, are, are being unilaterally delayed uh, the EU have um, the EU have reacted to this as you would imagine. Uh, they were expecting these these checks and procedures to to start up in the uh, in the very near future. They've accused us of breaching international. It's been ages since we've been accused of breaching international law, isn't it? I, I missed yeah. I missed that, and um, and um, you know things are, th- things seem to be escalating. Um, yeah. it's, it's it's pretty much a, a movable feast. Um, at the moment, the Ireland's foreign affairs minister has has said that uh, Britain simply cannot be trusted. The EU can now file a grievance under the withdrawal agreement process that sets in motion a whole chain of events which could lead to the imposition of tariffs by the EU, which would lead to imposition of tariffs by the UK. And this is all what the, the withdrawal agreement was supposed to yeah. to sort of you know, to counteract in the first place. Well, it's, um, the most chilling thing to me is, I mean, it sounds rather trivial, doesn't it, that, you know, they're just pushing something back of no great import yeah. back six months. But it's the, it's, the, it's the arrogance of it and the blasé way that they make these decisions without understanding, I think, the sort of massive potential consequences in Ireland, which is... You know, you've got the, who was it? Was it the DUP or something? So the DUP said that, you know, they, they felt the need to put out a statement saying this does not signal an intent to return to violence. You know, yes. bloody hell. You know, this is how quickly these conversations happen uh, and, and, and how quickly the fire builds in Ireland. And I don't understand it enough to comment on it intelligently, but... You know, I, I'm pretty sure the, the government doesn't understand it as well, or if they do, they certainly don't care about it. But this is a real big, hot issue in Ireland. And again, it's the issue that everybody sort of got wise to um, in, in the, you know, as soon as the Brexit vote was, was delivered. No one seemed to have thought about it that much before the vote. Everyone got wise to it after. And the, there is and remains no good solution. So... You know, this is still part of the, the fudge around um, a Brexit vote that didn't think about about this this uh, this problem in, in Ireland and the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah, I mean, I know it's, it is unattractive to say, I told you so, but, <laughs> we, but we did sort of tell you so. And, yeah. uh, and everyone saw that this was problematic. Uh, Boris Johnson said there would be no border... And no red tape. There is a border. There is red tape. The EU are talking about um, uh, erecting permanent um, 
border control posts in Northern Ireland so goods and services can be checked. This is partly a reaction to that. And then, as you alluded to, the, the loyalist paramilitary organisations have said that they no longer uh, support the Good Friday Agreement, and, and that yeah. brings um, and that brings all of that sort of back in. And it's just, I don't know if you've been watching this thing, Matt, Bloodlands, which has been no. on for the last two Sundays, and it's got it's, it's like a Sunday night thriller on BBC one it's got james nesbitt in it and um and it is about the hunt for a mysterious figure who is threatening stability in northern ireland and yeah uh i think you know if david Frost nesbitt gets all those kicks doesn't he he certainly does uh, he certainly does um and he's i mean very, he was great in the missing wasn't he um, yeah, yeah, yeah he was very really, very good yeah it's uh, just all like it is james nesbitt now that's the thing absolutely it is so um uh, it is James Nesbitt. So, but yeah, I mean, if David Frost is is embarking on his own search for a mysterious figure who is uh, threatening the stability in Northern Ireland, then I think he's, you know, he should he should be looking for a man called whose name begins with D F uh, <laughs> instead of Goliath. Um, and, and imagine how shocked David Frost is going to be when he finds out who actually negotiated this terrible withdrawal agreement that he's having <laughs> so, so much problems with. Um, we are. <laughs> We are going to move on from that, but obviously we'll be keeping uh, we're keeping track of that um, as we go. Later on, we'll be talking about the budget, um, Matt and I. But first of all, uh, we've been joined by um, the great Liz Gerrard. Um, you might know her from Twitter as uh, she's at Game Old Girl on Twitter. Um, she is a uh, respected media commentator. Uh, she's uh, spent four decades, I hope you don't mind me saying so, Liz, in um, in um, Fleet Street, uh, most notably, I think, as the, the night editor of The Times. This week, you've written an article in The New European. It is titled A Toxic Feud From Which There Will Be No Winners. Uh, that could probably be the title of any article in The New European. <laughs> 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 I didn't write the headings. <laughs> I must say, but on this occasion, tell, tell, tell us tell us what it what it is about. Well, it's it's our friends Megan and Harry, and um, the fact that the press are really very upset with them for not talking to them. Uh, yeah. Yes, they are. I mean, Matt, you've you know when in my Fleet Street days were, were mostly spent in in digital places and in and very much in the sport department but you were, were were right up there with the news what what is why do you think the the pair of you that that we have got this attritional attitude to um particularly to women in the royal family and um or the or the certainly the tabloid press have got that sort of yeah. traditional attitude women who who don't happen to be the queen or the queen mother or the or the, the or the new queen mother who who is obviously the duchess of cambridgeshire i don't know i don't know if it is i don't know if it's sexist because i don't i'm not sure i agree that it's it's just women i think prince charles has had you know gets a lot of it and uh you know, Harry himself has had plenty of it in the past, um, uh, as has William. I, I, with Meghan, I suspect it's because she is an outsider and she's got stuff to say, you know. Uh, so whether or not that is because she's a woman saying stuff, I don't know. But the, the British press, especially the tabloids, although it was very interesting to see the Times get stuck in, bizarre, you know, uh, this week. The British press, I think, feels 
almost a sense of ownership over the royal family. And uh, because it, it's been so good for newspaper circulations and stories for so long, um, and, and that obviously peaked in a tragedy with Diana. Um, but even, even so, even as they've kind of taken the foot off the pedal with the royal family, I think the British press do feel very strongly that they owe us. And uh, uh, whether they do or not is, um, is open to debate. But when you've got somebody like Meghan, who uh, is saying, well, frankly, we owe you nothing um, and we don't want to hear from you anymore, then they, um, they, they go on the front foot. And also the thing that the British press is hypocritically active about is hypocrisy. And, you know, yeah. I mean, the, the things that uh, that the press gets really steamed up about, a lot of them are things that the press themselves are guilty of. But when they see, and this is where I kind of have some sympathy for the case, when they see Harry on an open top bus with James Corden going through the streets of L.A. talking about how he resents the glare of media, well, well get off the bus, mate, literally get off the bus. You know, if you want to be quiet and have a quiet life, Get off the bus. We, you know, uh, the thing that made my toes curl when I saw it was that, I don't know if you remember that clip where Harry was talking to uh, Bob Iger at Disney in the, um, yeah. in the queue, in the lineup. And, you know, as, as, as Bob Iger, you know, one of the most powerful media men in the planet, on the planet escaping Harry's hand, Harry says, oh, you know, my wife's looking for voiceover deal work and stuff like this. Next thing, Megan's doing the voiceover for some Disney show. So I do find that sense of entitlement from Harry uh, and Megan, you know, really quite cringeworthy. I'm not, I'm a Republican. I'm not a monarchist, I'm afraid to say. But um, I've got, you know, I think the Queen's fantastic, but the rest of them, I think, you know, there is a bit of grit going on and they do have this enormous sense of entitlement. Um, and I suspect there's quite a few people who do feel the same way. That said, and I appreciate Liz, sorry, <laughs> I appreciate Liz was brought on here to talk about this and I've, I've, I've rambled on for about 20 minutes. But that said, I think um, it's interesting territory for the press because a lot of their readers are very, very pro-royal family and that extends to Harry and Meghan still and they'll see the press as being culpable in whipping up a storm that needn't be whipped up. Liz? Well, that's all we've got time for, no. <laughs> well, it's nice to join you, thanks. <laughs> but, but Liz, I mean, what is your, what's, what's your take on this complex relationship that, that the press and the, the, the tabloids particularly have with, with the royal family and, and with Meghan Markle? I think I think the, the the relationship between the royals and the press is that is that you've got two dying institutions. I mean, they're both in their death throes, and they both depend on each other um, for survival, really. Um, and which one dies first um, remains to be seen. What happens when when we lose the Queen? I don't think there's any appetite really for King Charles, and I don't think he from what I can see, has any appetite to step aside. So I think things are going to get quite tricky over the next decade or so. For ba- and, of course, we already see that the press are struggling. Um, with regard to Harry and Meghan, it's interesting that Matt's just talked at some length about Harry and 
his sense of entitlement and and his I mean he was the one on the bus um but the the fire is all directed at Megan mm. it's all really she's to blame I mean right down to making him wear grey I, I think that really you know oh she she as if he's sort of only exists as her as her yes. puppet yeah um and as as you as you rightly pointed out earlier there has been a load of treatment like this of all the women that have entered the royal family. Um, Diana, Camilla, Sarah Ferguson, most spectacularly, now Megan. Um, I was asking some people the other day why, why we were so horrid to her in the press. And they said, oh, they, everybody, she's not suffered any more than anything else. They're all whiny, they're hypocritical, they're, they're telling everybody to get on a bus when they get on a private jet jet and um, they don't want publicity and then they they're all over the place um, and that, that's all valid um, but they say but so Camilla had um, had bread rolls thrown at her in Waitrose you know as a result of the the treatment and look at what we, what happened to Sarah Ferguson and we were horrible to to Kate for years weighty Katie and all that and I thought there's almost an element of pride of we've been horrible to everyone it's not just Megan um, I think I think that this particular couple do ask for a lot of the stuff that's coming their way yeah um, I mean that so, some of this do you, do you think that some of this is related in in any way to I mean Prince Harry has been quite vocal and again he was you know he's vocal it was very he was vocal with James Corden as well wasn't he um he he blames the British press in some way if not completely he blames the British press for the death of his mother when he was a very you know he's a boy wasn't he he wasn't even a, he yes. wasn't even a young man um has this got anything to do with that and it, and is he is it, i mean it's you know i can understand why he believes that is there anything is there anything in that is the, is the do the british press have some culpability and is is he right and is there an element of score settling from the press with him because well, he continues to say it well there certainly is this there's certainly the score set thing, as you mentioned, because, I mean, he said so in so many words. I mean, he said it over and over again, that, the, you know, the press drove him out. He wasn't going to have what happened to his mother, happened to him. Diana was the arch manipulator of the yeah. press. She knew exactly what she was doing the whole time. There's no doubt at all that she that she had a, a pretty torrid time of it um, in, in her early days. At, at the palace, um, and she—you could see how thin she got. Uh, she was clearly not right, um, but she also she knew exactly how to play it. I mean, she walking down the street. I'm not—you're not saying that you can't go walking down the streets of London, but you know, when she was going off to the gym with her water bottle in her hand, woman ahead of her time. Everybody does that now. Um, it was all—it was all very carefully staged everything was done knowing where she was going to play the press how she was going to do it um the thing that irritates me about the press is that they keep moaning about these self-publicists who if they want privacy then they should go away but they are not actually there's no law that says that every time Megan does something you actually have to report it I mean they all mocked the James Corden thing and ran every word of it 
because it sells. And there's an awful lot of sour grapes about the Oprah thing because, I mean, all this crap about um, you know sort of put um, delay that delay it. You can't do it now because because Philip's in hospital. And, you know, the timing's bad. How could they be so thoughtless? I mean, they recorded those interviews long before Philip went into hospital or the Queen made her vaccination um, broadcast. They weren't overshadowing. It's bad timing because if they're so clod-hoppingly insensitive that they can't see that the people on both sides of the Atlantic are having a completely horrendous time with COVID and that they think that they're going to garner any sympathy by talking about their own woes at that time. That is just mind-blowingly stupid. But it's not, the timing is not wrong because of Philip. And to suggest that um, that they, they've got any power about stopping something that's been scheduled and trailed by, by an American um, network. I mean, can you imagine if 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 somebody rang um, the editor of the Daily Mirror if they had this interview and said, "Oh, I'm sorry, please could you hold that interview? My granddad's ill." Yeah. What would you say, Matt? I would say absolutely because I'm a decent person. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, so, so so that is all sour grapes because timing or no timing, they. Any newspaper would give their right arm for these interviews that they're, that they're, that they're mocking. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it is fascinating. And one aspect of it which I am really fascinated with, and you touched on it briefly in your piece this week, but I'm hoping that you'll dig a little bit deeper uh, for, for, for next week's issue, is why, does, uh, why do they steam in on Meghan and give... Prince Andrew, essentially a free ride. Given what the, the level of alleged complicity in some serious international crimes and, you know, awareness that Prince Andrew had of this, allegedly, is astonishing. And it makes anything Kate does look, uh, sorry, Megan does look like, you know, absolute trivia. But, but Andrew seems to have disappeared off the radar again, as far as the press is concerned. Well, um, I have, I am, as you're quite rightly, I'm, I am looking into this, and I would say that, um, give away my, 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 my key line, if you like, a week early, is that um, Megan is soap opera. She's EastEnders. Um, Andrew is line of duty. It's serious drama, and it's going to come to um, quite a spectacular head, I think. They are. Do you think yes. it will come to a head with Andrew? Yeah. I mean, remember, he's 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 lost his job essentially. He can't even appear in his own daughter's wedding photographs. Yeah. Um, he's been completely sidelined. Um, but if he was a politician, Liz, if he was a politician, then wouldn't that politician be on the front page of tabloids for months and months and months? Well, he know? was when it broke. He was. Oh, I long. mean, it disappeared, didn't it? After you know. To be fair, to be fair it does keep coming back, it, and it was. And the Daily Mail was. I do remember, you know, sort of when the story broke. I do remember um, the Daily Mail absolutely hammering it because. I remember because it was so sort of vague, the, the, the general allegations, and they weren't as, as explicit as they became um, when, when the, the Victoria, as it came forward. Yeah. Um, 
but um, I, I remember thinking day after day, oh, not another Andrew story, not another Andrew story. Uh -huh. So they, they were actually hammering it hard right at the beginning to give them their credit. Um, they are they are different things, but but you're right. I mean, the, the Andrew Andrew um, has appeared. I mean, Megan has appeared in six times as many stories over the last five years as Andrew has over the last ten. That's that is an incredible statistic. That is extraordinary. Wow. Well, <laughs> but some of the so, but some of the, some of the Megan stories have been positive. Yeah, yeah. No, of course, of course, but it's given the relative, um, you know, the relative offences that that each is accused of. One is, you know, a sort of family slight. The other is, you know, possible involvement in, you know, <laughs> one of the most sinister child trafficking rings in 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 memory. It that what you've just said is absolutely extraordinary. I think. But I think I think that. Um... This, this, the Andrew. I think there could be more digging, but it's difficult. I mean, the, more effort could be made if if there was an inclination. Yeah. But the F, the FBI and and the American authorities are on it now. So I think yeah. you know, press don't have money now. The papers don't have money that they used to have to to embark on these things. This thing will take its take its course. And once once Ms. Maxwell appears in court, um, yeah. I mean. If she, ever gets there, just, if she ever gets there, it's just going to explode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think you're I right. I think also there are there are there are other there are other legal um, things going on that involve reporting restrictions. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it may be kind of yeah, it may be very difficult for them legally. But, I'm but it does see, it does seem as if you know sort of why are you focusing on the trivia and not and not on on yeah. on this man. I'll tell you what, Liz, while we've got you, I'd love to ask your opinion on, on Roy Greenslade. Oh, I'm so sad about that. I really am. I mean, just I'm... for readers, just in case anybody doesn't know, Roy Greenslade is a, was, the, you know, before Liz took the mantle, was probably the uh, most uh, influential media commentator in the country and, and was an editor of the Daily Mirror, but worked for The Guardian for 25 years, who, interestingly, have not covered the story we're about to discuss, which is uh, Roy Greenslade saying all of that time as a journalist, he was supportive, quietly, covertly supportive of the IRA's uh, terror activity, essentially, saying he supported physical uh, physical violence, and he and he wrote for the um, for the IR for Sinn Fein's weekly newspaper as a under a pseudonym, uh, and it caused a hell of a stink, didn't it? Yes, I think that, I mean, it's not news. Um, I mean, Nick Davis wrote about this, God, 15 years ago, yeah. um, about about Roy writing um, stuff um, for the paper that I can't pronounce the name of, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. the Champagne paper. Um, so that was known. Even the pseudonym that he used was known. Um, Private Eye keeps harking on about it. In fact, it did only a week ago. Um, I know that there are some some people saying, well, he's got a bit of a cheap teaching ethics in journalism. Um, I, I've known Roy for years and I like him and I wouldn't regard him as a friend, but a good acquaintance, I would say. He's, yeah. he's always been helpful to me. Yeah. Um, 
And funnily enough, as on a, on a complete ego trip, side trip, um, I, got a, I, got a, I got a message from my, my great nephew who is working in Hong Kong on, on, on um, media things. And the first module that he um, was teaching, he picked up the thing, and it was a, it was a column by Roy Greenslade relating to that immigration thing that I did for you. Do you remember? Ray yes, Black? I do. I do. Yeah. And that was the first item in 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 the media module, which, okay. <laughs> um, which was it was extraordinary. But Roy, yeah. I, the question I just want to ask with Roy is why did he write that piece on yeah, Sunday? That's, that's what I, I just, don't, 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 I just, and, and in fact, I've, I've all week I've been meaning just to sit down and, and write him that. Just say, why? Yeah. Why did you do it? Because it, it was inevitable that, that, that papers like um, the Mail, who've never got any time for the Guardian anyway, um, and he's yeah. not got any time for them, went to town. And it doesn't matter to Mail readers. They don't give a monkey's very There was very much a sense of uh, kicking the Guardian. Um, but... I mean, the Guardian didn't do themselves any favours. I didn't think, no. but, you know, but I'm I don't not think talking. anybody's come out of it with any anything. I mean, the Sunday Times put it on the front page. Mm. The first first paragraph, the second first paragraph is former Fleet Street editor. Fair enough, Daily Mirror. That's 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 the big title, isn't it? Yeah. And then in the second paragraph, Greenslade, who wrote a media column for the Guardian and was the editor of the Mirror and did so and so. Tenth paragraph. Greenslade, who also worked for the Sunday Times. I yeah. mean, he ran their news operation, for heaven's right. sake. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, oh, we'll just pretend he's got nothing to do with Absolutely. us. <laughs> and it's certainly the, new, uh, the news um, on uh, over the weekend, it certainly seems to come as a complete shock to Kelvin McKenzie, who, <laughs> who, <laughs> who was foaming at the mouth about it, but, but works next to Roy Greenslade on the yeah. Sun for, for many years. So. Well, I, I know, that, that, that really was... Amazing. The idea that, I mean, for, for cheek, you have to hand it to him, don't you? I mean, oh, well, um, I had no idea. No. Yeah. Of course you yeah. And, and, you know, like you, Liz, I know Roy and uh, like him very much. And he's always been very supportive of me and the New European and all of this. And you know, there was a sense, part of me, um, I mean, he's entitled to, to think what he likes. Obviously, I think the idea that you support terrorists is is reprehensible but uh the don't we all as professional journalists put our political beliefs to one side when we are you know carving the newspaper out isn't that what we all do you know exactly exactly that that's the thing you know sort of the idea if in fact i mean it actually came into some use because the with the Gibraltar thing, which was an absolute shaming thing for the, the Sunday Times, the coverage of the of the shootings in Gibraltar was was a real stain on its reputation. Yeah. And he actually used his Republican contact, contacts to to try to get some level of balance in the story. But by and large, the the Sunday Times was Andrew Neil's Tory supporting newspaper and that's what it was and he never ever influenced that and if you if you, you can't expect every member of, of every newspaper staff to believe in everything the newspaper stands for I mean only last week was I was writing for you about 
you know, sort of, you've got a Remainer Labour voter running the Daily Express. Yeah. Can I just add the caveat that the new European will very much only ever employ people. Who, <laughs> <laughs> we're not, not going to have any any rabid bre- Brexiteers, only rabid Remainers. <laughs> you did, you did, but you did run a column by um, Aaron Banks. For you a bit, did. So my, yeah, I know that was. Yeah, the less said about that, the better. That was, it. <laughs> that, was some, some, that was a mistake, according to the three hundred and fifty thousand subscribers who wrote in to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, it, it, it is. I just think it's history. I don't understand why he wrote that piece. I, yeah. It's just. I mean, it, it can only be vanity, and I can't. I mean, I just. It's, it's as baffling, really, as, as... Well, I wondered whether... Now as, now he's based in Donegal pretty much full-time, I think. I wondered whether... Because he's joined Sinn Féin, I wondered whether he was going to get active in, in politics over there, which is possible. So he's sort of clearing the way a little bit. And, you know, maybe what he's said goes down well in, in Donegal. Again, I've got no idea. I don't know enough about it. But, uh, I again, like you, Liz, I completely bemused at, at, at why he would suddenly go out there and do that. Well, if the Sinn Féin newspaper is looking for a new columnist, then, I, then maybe Meghan Markle can, can, um, can step in, <laughs> which I think would win the approval of, um, of, of our, our friends in the, in the British press. Um, just, just finally on that list, before we let you go, is there, is there any sort of, is there any way that peace can be declared here? Are the, are the tabloids always going to be at war with, with Harry and, and Meghan, or will will peace only be achieved when he comes crawling back and everything goes wrong for him in uh, in Los Angeles? I think that's I think that's the only way there would ever be any level of um, reparation, unless you had a tragedy somewhere along the line. Dear, oh dear. I mean, I'm not, you know, sort of whether, I mean, various, you know, sort of things that you really wouldn't wish on anybody. Um, no, but when when the inevitable happens and the Queen passes away, uh, I think that will possibly be the last, or or certainly that will be peak royal in, mm. in, in, in British media history. And everyone will come together. And I think at that point, everyone will take a step back and, and rethink who they are and what they do, and you know, probably well belatedly, but it's uh, yes. You know, I feel a bit sorry for them all, to be honest, because none of them really, you know, if if you take it the premise that she has genuinely fallen in love with Harry and they've got married, and you know, oh, life's so short, isn't it? You know, it's like it's. I feel sorry for anybody trapped in that kind of system where. Other people pull there are forces pulling them left, right, and centre. Yeah, I think, and I, I, do. Think it's, I think it's sad for I do. Sad is, is such a, is, is a silly word, isn't it? When you when you think of all the privilege that this couple has, but she she was a self successful self made woman um, before she met him. Yeah, um, he might have grasped her as a way of getting out they want a public life they just don't want the public life that the tabloids want them to have they yeah. want them to be kate dutiful kate and wills going yeah. around shaking hands and being nice 
That's what they want them to do. Um, they don't want to do that. And the tabloids seem to take the view that either you can have a private life and live, just go, go, go to work in the office and keep your head down, or you can have, or you can be royal, but you can't have a public life. The idea that they might actually choose to do something where they're not owned by the tabloids, but they're still in the public eye. That, 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 that's the thing that, that is eluding, I think, the tabloids is the idea that you can you can want to to do a public job, but on your own terms, not on somebody else's terms. Yeah, yeah, I think that's. So they're not. You know, you know, the, the, the argument now is that they're, that they're playing on his royal status and that they'd be nothing without his royal status. Um, I'm not so sure that's true in America. Well, she, certainly she, as you said, you know, the, the, the sort of tragedy for, for Meghan is that she is now, you know, Prince Harry's wife rather than being Meghan Markle, which, and you know, whether she had a stellar career or not is besides the point. She came from humble background and she made herself a you know a, a tv star which is you know a big thing and just to write her off as the the arm candy of, of prince harry is 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 ridiculous yes and uh, of course and and you know and um i think it we should we should remember that it was probably about a year ago wasn't it that there was that famous or or maybe it was before the before the pandemic but so 18 months ago there was a, a great sun leader which essentially said that they should stop moaning um get out of britain and get a proper job and make their own money and so so they've got out of britain and made their own money and now we're we're yeah. kind of saying well not like that Liz, just before, I mean, you use the word soap opera, Liz, and I think that is exactly the level people need to need to sort of uh, give this thing, you know, relevance and attention. It is, it is just a soap opera, and if you take it on those terms, then then you you know it's fair enough. But unfortunately, there's it, it's a soap opera with real people in the middle of it, not actors. So, you know, I do feel sorry for them. Yes, it's great having you, Liz. Thank you so okay, much. Thanks again. And we will speak soon. That's Liz. Thanks, Liz. Sarah. Take care. And you. Uh, and you can read her uh, piece um, about the toxic relationship between Meghan, Harry, and the British press in this week's New European. Uh, or subscribe at neweuropean.co.uk or we're available in all stores. <laughs> Before we look at the Hall of Shame, Matt, and there is some great entrance in that this week, we should talk about the budget, which kind of um, dominated uh, a, a very busy news week. What are your initial thoughts on this? I mean, I, I'm kind of thinking that this is a, a, a maybe a watershed moment for, for Rishi Sunak. The budget's been greeted with um, some approval, if you believe the... Uh, the newspapers, especially the Times, who were really gushing over it, mm. um, it got the instant polls showed that it was viewed very favourably. But as these things, uh, as always happens, you know, stuff is starting to come out now, and I wonder whether this is the end, the beginning of the end of uh, of our love affair with Rishi Sunak. Well, I mean, the thing that's coming out is that you know, when you do the math, that a lot of people, if they, if if this comes to pass, the budget that he's laid out, a lot of people will be poorer 
because of it, you know, and, and there's still this sense of austerity uh, in, in, in the thinking. And my only real observation is, is that I, I just don't believe that anything he's set out right now will not be affected by what happens in the next few months. Yeah. And, you know, whether you'll be able to stick to these plans, I don't know. But it was very interesting that here you have a Tory chancellor who uh, almost rejecting core Tory philosophy, which is to, you know, let business uh, grow uh, grow its way out of uh, economic troubles by instead saying we're going to tax the hell out of you. You know, it's, I know he keeps saying that we've got the lowest tax regime of the G7 and all of that, but I've read plenty of stuff stuff suggesting that actually, no, it puts us as the most tax punitive country for corporations in, in Europe. So, you know, um, I, th- I thought it was a very interesting um, contradictory strategy when all of the talk before COVID was all about global Britain, come and invest, you know, we're the best place to, to have your business and we'll trade with, with everybody. Well, that just got harder now. Yeah, I mean, there's some... The, the the sin of omission is is a thing, isn't it? Because when you look at what he's proposing after after next year, there is there is no provision. It, it seems to me mm. for ongoing uh, test and trace, which is a farce to begin with. Ongoing vaccinations. There's nothing to deal with the huge backlog of operations and and the the fact that the waiting list is. Is is longer than ever. Yeah. Um, that all seems really worrying to me. And instead, we've we've actually got you know. And I know that they will say, well, we're going to build these forty new hospitals, which actually is improving six existing hospitals, isn't it? But yeah. we're going to yeah. build forty new hospitals. But but then we've got this thirty billion cut in the NHS uh, England core resource spending, um, yeah. which is uh, which is you know really that is to me is really worrying. And again, and I bring this up you know just as a side note because we mentioned it a couple of weeks ago here nothing again about social care yes which is the key issue that is going to affect this country when we get out of this and for the next 50 years afterwards it is astonishing and this you know we've said it time and time again that one of the biggest uh, tragedies of, of the last four years has been how the brexit debate has put you know really important things to one side and this government has done nothing on social care despite knowing this it's been on everyone's agenda something that desperately needs fixing and they've done nothing and they've had plenty of time to do it and i think you know the idea that it's it's on their priority list is is getting a bit thin we need to completely rethink how social care web nets into our health system and and what we expect society, to, which burden society should take, and and the level of burden on on individuals, it needs a total rethink. But uh, you know they're not giving it the bandwidth it really needs. Uh, I, I mean I couldn't agree more. And you know I know listen I know all governments lie to a certain extent. Whether you support the the, the governments that I voted for have lied, and and the governments that I voted against have lied. But it is. You know, when you hear Rishi Sunak, as I, as I heard him on, on Thursday morning, saying, talking about social care and answering the question, why is there nothing about social care? He, he said on the Today programme, we're trying to build a, a cross-party consensus 
Yeah. Uh, and so I'm trying to do that before we examine social care. And then we have the shadow minister for social care, who is Liz Kendall, who, yeah. who then tweets, this has not been discussed or even raised by with me by any minister. Well, I think Laura Koonsberg, who, uh, you know, I know a lot of people don't like her. I think she's an excellent journalist. And she, as he was saying that, she tweeted Liz Kendall and said, uh, or uh, sorry, messaged her and said, right. is this true? And got a text back saying, absolute bollocks. No, it's not true at all. No one's been in touch. So, you know, th- this, um, th- it's the arrogance that does my head. And, you know, the fact that these people are so blithe about their lies and th- what's the big consequence of it? Nothing. You and me moaning about them on a podcast. <laughs> That's it. You know, so no wonder they feel that they don't need to, to stick to the absolute truth because there's no consequence. I think, you know, you can make a very good case for having a criminal offence for being in public office and telling untruths, you know, and, and, you know, people should have their cards marked seriously when you come on to public media and tell out-and-out lies, because it, it is seriously damaging to society. I, th- I think that is, a, I think that's a, an excellent and important suggestion, um, because you, you're right, for, for one reason or another, for bad opposition leading to, you know, the, the a, a large majority and all the arrogance that brings, yeah. it's, it's, it's just a parade of of untruth, some of which we'll be dealing with in the Hall of Shame. Uh, Mind you, you know, if, if there was such a criminal offence, Boris Johnson would currently be tied to a radiator next to Navalny in, in penal colony number two. I mean, it's he's the biggest liar of them all, but because it's, it's Boris, well, ho, 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 ho. It's, uh, it, it's a matter of, you know, it's a matter of despair, isn't it, that... Um, yeah that they are currently seven points ahead in the polls. But, you know, hey, yeah. people are optimistic about the vaccine. I can't, I kind of understand that. There is a long way to go um, until, the, uh, until the next general election, even if he reclaims the power to call uh, a general election whenever he likes. It's not, there's yeah. not going to be one for a couple of years, is there, um, while no. this is going on. No, although uh, they were talking about the timing of the corporation tax kicking in in 2023, apparently a lot of people have indicated yes. that they thought that that was a signal that there may be a general election in 2023 which would be yeah which would be a which would be a, a year early um so we'll come back to the budget i'm sure in future future podcasts as, as it starts to unravel um i would i did want to flag up i don't know whether there's anything you want to flag up that's in the the edition of the new european which is on the streets now uh it's got a great cover uh with emmanuel macron and marine le pen yeah. Um, Alistair Campbell has profiled Macron. Um, it's a brilliant piece. Uh, a brilliant piece. Um, I really wanted to flag up a piece by Roger Domingetti, which is about Get Carter. Yeah. The, uh, the, 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 I mean, it's a seminal uh, British crime thriller. Uh, it's 50 years old uh, next month, I believe. And Roger has written a really great piece about the how the locations the really iconic locations um, of Get Carter and how they have changed and how the North East has, has changed. So check that out. I think... And I really like Will Self's column this week. Will Self's column is, is, is outstanding, yeah. About, um, about encountering anti-Semitism in a queue at the uh, post office. And it's a, it's a brilliant, thoughtful column with a quite blunt uh, and fairly brutal conclusion, but well worth a read. 
Yeah, so that's the new European. I mean, having had a little time away from the from the new European uh, for various reasons recently, uh, I am reminded of what a great thing the uh, the print edition is. So please, if you if you like this podcast, go out buy the the print edition and uh, and support us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk. Buy two copies and give one to a Brexiteer. Yes, that's a good idea. Um, we're talking about some Brexiteers. We always, at the end of this, we put politicians or things in the hall of shame. It's a repository for rubbish ministers and political blather and things that generally annoy us. Um, are you? Uh, what, what do you have for the hall of shame this week? Have you got anything that you would that's particularly vexing you? Because I've got, I've got loads. Have you got a long list? I'll let you crack on then. In that case. I've got a long, long <laughs> list. Well, I tell you what. Something that particular I particularly enjoyed um, uh, during the budget was um, during uh, was Keir Starmer. I thought his response, which you know he had had sight just as it was being read out of a kind of redacted um, yeah. version of the budget, you could see him as um, Sunak was going through it. Uh, you could see him kind of alone on the on the front benches. Um, ticking things off and um, uh, obviously circling things that he thought were interesting. And then he delivered a really good, I mean, what a thankless task it is to deliver a response to a budget that you've only just heard and you're only just looking at. Um, I thought he was really good. And in the middle of it, James Cleverly, uh, his response, James James Cleverly tweeted, watching Keir Starmer's joke-filled speech today was like watching an episode of Friends without the laugh track. Um, and I thought, you know, maybe it's the one that we give where we give Gunter from Central Perk a 30 million PPE contract. Um, I thought it was just a particularly poor response to a, a, a great uh, a, a great effort by Keir Starmer, who has yeah. had some stick. I thought he looked good in his glasses as well. Did you, I, I was worried a little bit about his complexion. It looked like his, he was having a bit of moisturiser trouble. So I don't know whether he switched his... His man cave moisturizer or not, but it's uh, sort of reddened up a bit. Maybe he's a ruddy, he's a ruddy man, isn't he? Maybe he's taken to the drink, and I wouldn't blame him. <laughs> no, indeed. Um, it's traditional at this time in the Hall of Shame that we say a lack, and I read out some stupidity that Anne Widdicombe has written in the Daily Express. Uh, and I'm going to here we go. Uh, this is this is these are Anne's words this week. Here I was rejoicing when Tim Davy, the new director general of the BBC, declared that impartiality was all. But now he turns out to be as achingly woke as it is possible to be. Davy aims for the BBC workforce to become 50 percent female, 20 percent BAME and 12 percent disabled. Heaven help white male applicants from high achieving families. Yes, won't somebody please think of all those rich left behind white men? Yes. Um, who is going to stand up for the pink wall, Matt? The pinkish, ruddy wall. It is fantastic, isn't it? The outrage, the outrage of privilege being swept away from under people's feet. <laughs> Why would someone think of the the, the white male applicants? Uh, Anne Whittacombe is like, you know, she is a Harry Enfield sketch now, isn't she? Well, I mean, for the lazy political humorist like myself, she's a godsend because all I have to do to build two minutes of this. Do you describe yourself as a political humorist? I think I, I think I'm becoming one in my old age. Yeah, yeah. That's brilliant. I think, 
I think so. Being <laughs> <Peter> Hogarth. <laughs> Um, George Eustace, I wanted to mention him. He's getting quite a lot of stick. George Eustace has kind of, uh, is pre- the Environment Secretary, of course, he's presiding over this farce regarding shellfish, uh, which once again, we all said, this is going to be a problem. They all said it isn't going to be a problem. Uh, and now it is a problem. And George Eustace was on Channel 4 News last week. He said the EU have uh, had a change of heart and made uh, they're making things up as they go along, and this is over um, a regulation which basically said beforehand we could send unpurified seafood, mollusks, oysters, whelks, etc., etc., to the EU. They would purify them there. Now we're a third country. We can't do that anymore. He said that was a new thing, and, and the EU had, had a change of heart on it, and they'd made it up. And now a letter has come out, a December the 10th letter, from George Eustace to his colleagues, in which he makes it clear that when we become a third country on January the 1st, the export of unpurified live wild bivalve mollusks to the EU will not be possible. Is it just bivalve mollusks? It is just bivalve mollusks. If you're a trivalve mollusk, you're all right. You're in. Or a monovalve. Can you have a monovalve mollusk? I don't know whether you can. I mean, I think, do the bivalves make them more tasty? Because oysters are are particularly lovely, I think. Perhaps some some marine biologists can write in and let us know. Other bivalve mollusks are available. Is it Um, it tautology? Are all mollusks bivalve? Who knows? We'll find out. If you're a marine biologist like George yeah. Costanza from Seinfeld, then please write into the podcast and let us Maybe know. Maybe you could be a bipartisan mollusk as well. <laughs> a bipartisan bivalve mollusk. Oh, while we're on the subject, I mean, so, I mean, yeah, again, it's, it's totally untrue, isn't it? And he, I, it was nice to see him being uh, picked up on it yesterday in um, in Parliament by Luke Pollard, who is, I think, is, is his shadow and is doing yeah. fine work. Um Thanks. While we're talking about the Daily Express, thanks to to Marine Le Pen's advisor, Philippe Olivier. Uh, he uh, he was interviewed by the Daily Express and he said he had a solution to the shellfish problem. He said what we need is a bipartisan shellfish trade deal between Britain and France. Sounds brilliant, doesn't it? Um, and then the Daily Express put at the bottom of this. France is not unable to do this, is, is not able to do this at the moment as it is a member of the EU. Oh, that's a shame, isn't it? So just one teeny problem. <laughs> um, the fact that we walked away from the biggest trading block on the planet, that would be an ideal solution. It is completely baffling, isn't it? <laughs> uh, and finally, in the hall of shame is Andrew Bridgen, a uh, mm. sleepy-eyed Brexiteer. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen a letter to David Frost that he wrote. Uh, it's signed by him. It's signed by other Brexiteers, Michael Fabricant. Steve yeah. Baker, Peter Bone. This is a letter written by a grown man, <laughs> signed by other grown men. We urge you to consider a ban on the import of bottled water products from the EU. Uh, this is in regard to tit for tat for, with the shellfish stuff. Uh, it says there could be few things more wasteful than transporting bottled water around and its packaging around the world. Reading this by Andrew Bridgen is more wasteful, I would say. During the last four years of negotiations, the EU have taken every advantage of playing the CAD, and the UK has had every disadvantage of playing the gentleman. It gets worse. 
it is time for the e- the UK to make a stand and say, oh, E-A-U, no. Oh, no, oh, no. E-A-U, <laughs> until they lift their ban on UK shellfish. I mean, as I say, a grown man wrote that, and it's worth saying that Andrew Bridgen, Steve Baker, Peter Bowe, Michael Fabricant, everybody else, uh, they all voted for the trade deal under which this has happened, and they did not notice that it wouldn't happen. Because it turns Uh, out it's all quite complex, doesn't it? It's just amazing, isn't it? Uh, blood is thicker than water, even EU mineral water. But Andrew Bridgen, I think, is thicker than osmium, which is the thickest occurring element. Is that right? It I've is. never even heard of osmium. What, osmium, what it's part of the platinum. I can tell you now, I'm, I'm not reading this. I'm doing this off the top of my head. Of it belongs to the precious platinum group of metals. This shiny looking subse- substance is twice as dense as lead. Twice as dense as lead? But not as dense as Andrew Bridgen. Um, Matt, that brings the Hall of Shame to an end, and I think it yeah. brings to an end another sensational new European podcast. I wouldn't. I. I don't. I don't know if I'd give it sensation. Well, moderately. Moderate, moderately successful. Well, thank you so much for listening, everyone. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Thank you. Buy the paper. See you next week. And uh, you can like this podcast and rate it on your podcatcher of choice. You can subscribe to The New European, as I think I mentioned, at theneweuropean.co.uk. Join our Facebook readers group. Follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. And you can follow The New European uh, on Twitter at The New European. Now, Alistair Campbell will play the bagpipes. And we're out of here. Bye. Here you go. of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.